A lot can happen in 15 days. The lead starts right now. Fight for control. Brand new CNN polls in two of the tightest races in the country. The clues in the data that could determine the balance of power. Also, what prosecutors call a landmark case. A mass shooting suspect pleads guilty to killing his classmates. His parents accused of giving him easy access to the gun. Why his legal troubles do not end with today's plea. And Republican Senator Lindsey Graham getting Supreme Court help for now in his fight against a subpoena in a case trying to get to the bottom of election interference. Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper. We are 15 days away from the midterm elections and U.S. voters are hitting the polling booths nice and early. Almost 7.3 million ballots have been cast in 39 states so far. Florida and Georgia, critical battlegrounds, both reporting huge numbers. In other words, great news for democracy at work. The not-so-great news? Complaints of voter intimidation in Arizona. Two armed men were seen last Friday in tactical gear patrolling near a ballot drop box. That's according to Maricopa County's election department. The men left when deputies showed up. This afternoon, Attorney General Merrick Garland responded to that incident with a pledge to voters. The Justice Department has an obligation to prevent, uh, to guarantee a free uh, and fair uh, vote by everyone who is qualified to vote uh, and will not permit uh, voters to be intimidated. This year, nearly every race could determine which party controls the Senate come January. In just a moment, brand new CNN polling dissecting which races to watch closely. But first, how Democrats are trying to hold their slim majorities. And as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, how Republicans are trying to counter that message. On the eve of a critical debate, all eyes are on Pennsylvania in the fight for control of the Senate as Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz share a stage for the first time. Thank you very much. A new CNN poll shows Fetterman with a narrow edge, 51 to 45 percent, just outside the survey's margin of error, as Oz works to boost his campaign two weeks before Election Day. The race to fill the seat of retiring Republican Senator Pat Toomey has played out as a bitter long-distance duel, with a sharp focus on Fetterman's recovery from a near-deadly stroke in May. It's the elephant in the room uh, having having a stroke. At a weekend campaign stop, Fetterman explaining how he will use closed captioning during his face-to-face encounter with Oz Tuesday night. The lingering issue is they called it auditory processing, which makes it, uh, I hear and I understand everything in terms of on words, on, on paper, uh, and understand what I hear. But when we're talking about very specific and having things like this, we're going to need, ca- I need captioning. Today, Oz unveiling a plan to fight crime. We're going to deal with the crime and drugs that are creating lawlessness. An issue that has been front and center in their contest. With President Biden spending most days off the campaign trail, he made a brief visit today to the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in Washington. Whether we uh, maintain control of the Senate and the House is a big deal. And uh, so far we're running against the tide and we're beating the tide. It's yet another reminder the November elections will have lasting consequences for the 2024 presidential campaign, particularly governor's races in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, all states that formed Biden's blue wall just two years ago, after Donald Trump carried them in 2016. In Pennsylvania, the new CNN poll finds Democratic candidate Josh Shapiro with a 15-point lead over Republican rival Doug Mastriano. 
In Michigan, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer holds a narrower six-point edge over Republican Tudor Dixon. And in Wisconsin, an even tighter race between Democratic Governor Tony Evers and Republican Tim Michaels. The economy is top of mind for voters and should be more of a priority for Democratic candidates, Senator Bernie Sanders told CNN State of the Union. I am worried about the level of uh, voter turnout among young people and working people who will be voting Democratic. And I think, again, what Democrats have got to do is contrast their economic plan with the Republicans. Now, here in Pennsylvania, half a million voters have already cast their ballots, but certainly so many more are waiting until that debate tomorrow evening here in the Commonwealth against John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz. For weeks and months, Dr. Oz has been suggesting that Fetterman is not up to the task of being a senator. Of course, talking about that stroke and, and a heart attack he suffered earlier in the year. Fetterman says he is, but he will be using closed captioning at the debate tomorrow evening. John, one thing is clear. This will be the first time that many voters here in Pennsylvania have seen either one of them outside of their TV sets in those 30-second TV ads. So this debate actually could shape this important Senate race. No doubt about that. Jeff Zeleny in Philadelphia, home of the National League champion, Philadelphia Phillies. Jeff, thank you very much. Indeed. To Florida now in tonight's high-stakes debate between Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and his challenger, Democratic former Governor Charlie Crist, who has lagged behind his rival. CNN's Casey Hunt is live in Fort Pierce, Florida. And Casey, Crist is trying to engineer a comeback in this race. How vital is tonight's debate for it? Well, this very very well may be his very last chance, John, to derail what has been a Ron DeSantis train that has been picking up momentum in the wake of that uh, terribly tragic hurricane that hit the state of Florida just two weeks ago. This debate was postponed because of Hurricane Ian. So Chris has been out there arguing that Ron DeSantis only wants to run for president in 2024. And that really, the bottom line, those are the stakes for Ron DeSantis here. You'll remember he won his last race for governor just barely over the Democrat. This is still a swing state, despite the fact that it's become uh, really a a stomping ground for conservatives uh, in the post-Trump era. Uh, But there are a lot of questions here about whether Chris is going to be able to do anything along those lines. So far, his cash advantage, uh, his cash disadvantage, so enormous, it's just going to be very hard to catch up. So Casey, how has Ron DeSantis been handling that criticism that he only has eyes for 2024? (laughs) Well, he claims that he is focused solely on the governor's race here in Florida, but everything he's been doing behind the scenes uh, tells a completely different story. He's been very careful in how he's rolled out endorsements around the country. Just this morning, he got into a spat with the former president, uh, Donald Trump, or at least Trump tried to pick a fight with him, criticizing his decision, DeSantis' decision to endorse a more moderate Republican that's running for the Senate in Colorado. DeSantis, I'm also told by sources, has been very careful to stay out of races in Iowa and New Hampshire, places where uh, he may need support should he run that 2024 campaign. So while they may be obviously here talking about the 2022 election, the DeSantis eyes are clearly on 2024, John. Yeah, you can't do anything casually in Iowa or New Hampshire if you might want to run for president. Casey Hunt in Fort Pierce, Florida. Casey, thank you very much. Let's talk more about the new CNN polling. I'm joined by CNN political director David Challey. And David, let's focus on Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Always key states, key Senate races. What issues are these voters most energized about? Yeah, these are the two states where Democrats see a potential hope to try and actually pad their majority or at least get an insurance policy against maybe potential losses elsewhere 
on the map. Currently, two Republican-held Senate seats. Our poll had, among likely voters in Pennsylvania, this slight edge for Lieutenant Governor Democrat John Fetterman, 51%, to Mehmet Oz, the Republican, at 45%. Top issues, John, economy and inflation going away. It sort of dwarfs everything else. 44% of voters say the top's issue. Look at this broken out by candidate. Among those economy inflation voters, again, 44% of the likely voter pool in this poll, Oz is winning two to one, those voters, 64% to 32%. Now, abortion, fewer voters say it's their top issue. Fetterman's winning that going away, 79% uh, to 21%. Out in Wisconsin, we have no clear leader in this race, uh, a razor-thin race here between the incumbent Republican Ron Johnson at 50% among likely voters, Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor, the Democrat, 49%, no clear leader. The top issues in Wisconsin, a similar picture, John. 47% say economy and inflation is the number one issue. Everything is much lower down after that. And we see an even bigger discrepancy here. Among those economy voters in Wisconsin, they go for Ron Johnson, 78% to 21%. Again, total flip on abortion rights, but fewer people say that is their top choice. So, David, this poll also sheds some light on what is motivating voters to get to the polls this cycle. I think this is one of the most fascinating questions we have uh, in our polls, John. Take a look here. We ask people, candidate issue positions, or are you a strategic voter and which party controls the Senate matters or the character of the candidate? You see here the plurality, 48% say it's a candidate issue positions in Pennsylvania among likely voters. But look at this. When you look at how it breaks for the candidates, the folks who say that which party controls the Senate is a driving factor in their vote, They go for Oz, 57% to 42%. That is a different story in Wisconsin. Here, okay, the issue voters overwhelmingly go Johnson, 58% to 41%. Again, the plurality. But among those that are concerned about party control, which party controls the Senate? Well, you see here, that benefits Mandela Barnes, 54% to 45%. The strategy voters here are more leaning towards the Democrat in Wisconsin, John. That is interesting to see that discrepancy there. I wonder why. David Chalian, as always, thank you so much for being with us. Let's dig deeper now. Tara Palmieri from Puck News, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. What jumps out at you? You've had a chance to look at these polls. You know, which party's happier with where things stand right now? It's an interesting question. I look at Pennsylvania and you see the race tightening, right? Fetterman had double-digit lead over um, the summer. And I have to look at the numbers that are being spent um, from independent expenditures, specifically from the Republicans. I think it's been like $60 million almost hit at uh, John Fetterman. By the end of this week, they will have spent $100 million outside groups in Pennsylvania Senate race alone. So I think that's a big reason why you're seeing these numbers start to tighten. Um, I do wonder how this will all shake out because Doug Mastria, uh, Josh Shapiro, is the Democratic candidate. He is polling for governor. Du- for governor in Pennsylvania. He is polling double digits ahead of Doug Mastriano. He is a Democrat. Could he help, you know, Fetterman along in a race that's really starting to tight? Are we going to see ticket splitters, people who vote for, you know, a Democratic governor and then a Republican senator being Dr. Oz? So we're going to have to see what happens in that case. And the same thing in Wisconsin, the amount of outside spending that is going into these races, I think that's why you're seeing them tighten up. 
Mitch McConnell has his eyes on Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and that Senate leadership fund is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on these races. Look, money matters. Issues matter, too, Basil. And if you look at the ranking, Basil Smichael, very nice to see you, by the way. And you look at the issues, and we had them up on the screen before. The economy and inflation, clearly the most important issue. That's in the mid-40s in both of these key states. And then way down below that, abortion and also election integrity and voting rights here. So what does that tell you? Well, we can go to the issue about ticket splitting, because I think that's really important. You may see a lot of voters, particularly Democratic voters, that say we want to make sure that Democrats control the Senate because of Lindsey Graham's, you know, national a bill on, nat- on nationalizing uh, abortion restrictions, for example, but may vote for the Republican for uh, for governor. So that ticket splitting is something I'm certainly looking at. Um, around a lot of these issues like inflation, but also abortion reproductive rights. What, what, but I also think what Bernie Sanders was saying is really critical as well, because Democrats know how to talk about these issues. We won in the suburbs over the last couple of cycles. So Democrats clearly have the talking points to talk to those voters. But, you know, this, the word that was in our lexicon in 2016 that we've purged, which is pivot, uh, that actual function still needs to exist. And while the Democrats were really good at putting threats to democracy uh, out there and it was polling very well in the sort of the early fall, we needed to turn the table and start talking about inflation, crime, for example, uh, gas prices, all of those economic issues, which we have in our in our quiver. We just probably didn't do quickly enough, but there's still time. So you think pivot to the economy? Yes, I, absolutely. I absolutely. Because if you're if you're if you're motivated for reproductive rights, if you're motivated because you are concerned about threats to democracy, that's already built in. So let's let's start talking about other things, which we do have in our vocabulary. It's funny you should say that <laughs> because President Joe Biden, who is the top Democrat in the country, yeah. seems to be doing that. Charlie, Dan, I want you to listen to this and how he is now leaning into the economy with this very specific language. This was the president of the DNC today. Democrats are building a better America for everyone with an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out where everyone does well. Republicans are doubling down on their mega mega trickle down economics that benefits the very wealthy, fail the country before and will fail it again if they win. Mega mega trickle down, Charlie. How will that work? Yeah. I don't think it's going to help Joe Biden very much. The mood is clearly moving toward the Republicans. The Democrats are playing defense in Oregon and Rhode Island and Nevada and a number of places. Inflation and the economy are driving everything. It seems to me right now that uh, I think the Democrats are in this very defensive position on the economy because they are being hit. Uh, with some justification about some of the spending on the uh, on the American Rescue Plan that overspent and juiced the demand even more, helping to contribute to inflation. So I think they're in a defensive position and people are feeling it. And uh, wherever you are, and, I, and not, it's not just the economy. I, I like to follow up on the crime issue uh, in, in Philadelphia. This is a, a huge issue. Uh, it's an enormous issue that people are talking about. And they're not just talking to people in Philadelphia, but people in that whole media market who are paying close attention. So I'm not sure what Biden said today is really going to do much to help them. Is there anything that Democrats or Biden could say about the economy that would scare you as a Republican? Well, I mean, it seems like right now, let's take the student loan bill that they're, they're talking about. That could be a half a trillion dollars. Well, that's going to actually juice inflation, according to the economists, too, because, again, they're going to juice demand. I mean, that's, their, that's a solution to a problem from their perspective, but that's not going to help on the inflation matter. I mean, I could point at a number of things that they've been proposing, that they, even their, their uh, Inflation Reduction Act really has very little to do with inflation. It was a price control bill on drugs and climate change, but it really didn't deal with inflation. So 7.3 million early ballots already cast. That's a lot. Right. 7.3 million people have already voted in this election. Uh, again, the number is up from, from two, four years ago. 
But also we're seeing this video of voter intimidation, what looks like voter right. intimidation in Arizona. How do you think that's going to play out? Well, high turnout is generally good for Democrats, right? And it does seem that people are starting to um, embrace the COVID changes that we've seen, the ability to vote early, the mail in your ballots, not feeling like you're an absentee voter, just to vote early. And maybe, you know, people have changed in their style of voting at the same time. This change has caused a lot of unrest and has used some politicians to try to create a sense of fear that the change means that you can't trust the ballots and you can't trust the results. And that's why you're seeing this intimidation. You see poll workers, they don't even want to work in polls anymore because they don't want to work there because they're afraid of being harassed and people don't want to vote. I mean, it's a really terrifying thing. And I think the anxiety around the change is being exploited. Look, and you can see it working in the poll numbers right now, some stunning numbers within these polls. When you ask among likely Pennsylvania voters, 70% say they're somewhat confident, very or somewhat confident that their vote will be cast and counted as they intended, but only 46% of Republicans say they're confident that their vote will be counted carefully. In, in Wisconsin, it's 51% of Republicans. In Michigan, it's 41%. Charlie, Republicans don't believe in elections. Well, <laughs> look, I would tell anybody in Pennsylvania that we know how to run elections in Pennsylvania. We're very good at it. They are generally very fair uh, and they're pretty transparent. Uh, and so I think uh, that's totally misguided for people to think it's not going to be. Our problem in this country, frankly, is what happens after the election. That's what we witnessed in 2020. And, uh, you know, I hear all this stuff about, oh, Republicans not liking mail-in votes. Well, here, here's my absentee ballot application I received from the Republican State Committee to vote by absentee. I've already voted by absentee. You know, but Republicans were always very good at this. And yeah. because of Donald Trump, he told Republicans not to vote by mail, even though in Pennsylvania we were better at it than the Democrats. One other thing that may yeah. not be helping is the way that some politicians talk about the last election. Ted yeah. Cruz was on The View today yeah. and pressed repeatedly about whether Joe Biden won the 2020 election, which he did. And you can watch some of that here. Listen. Listen, Biden is the president today. There's a lot of folks in the media that any time... Hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm answering exactly that question. Okay. There are a lot of folks in the media that try to, any time a Republican is in front of a TV camera, try to say the election was fair and square and legitimate. You know who y'all don't do that to? You don't do it to Hillary Clinton, who stood up and said Trump but, stole but the election. They didn't storm the Capitol. Yeah, they didn't try to kill Stacey my former Abrams, who said, boss. Who said that the election was stolen. They sat here yes. and said it was That's illegitimate. Right. And, and, and was. you guys were fine with it what's he trying to do there yeah i don't know uh listen the, you know as much as he could try to sort of step away from what was called the big lie i like to call it the big conspiracy why because there's so many people around the country that have spent a lot of money put a lot of resources into and through talking points in front of a lot of candidates to do exactly what i was saying drive fear in in the minds of a lot of voters about the outcomes of elections that fear is what's driving so much of uh, what's, what we're seeing on the right. When you layer that with, with the conversations around crime, as you were talking about, which is consistently being racialized and urbanized, that fear is one of the biggest drivers for the right. And that's what Democrats have to contend with in this cycle. All right, friends, great to see you. 15 you. days left. Next, House Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas today stepped into Republican Senator Lindsey Graham's subpoena fight Plus, a once super-rich banker, now he's the first person of color to be Britain's prime minister. And that's not the only historic president for this new leader. We are back with our politics lead. Senator Lindsey Graham is off the hook for now. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas today agreed to temporarily block a subpoena for the South Carolina Republican. 
Graham's testimony is sought by a special grand jury investigating possible criminal interference in Georgia's 2020 presidential election. I want to bring in CNN Sarah Murray. Sarah, why was Justice Thomas solo in making this decision? Well, look, Justice Thomas has jurisdiction over the lower courts that were considering this matter. And the lower courts said they were not going to press pause on this. You know, Lindsey Graham has been arguing that he should not have to appear before a grand jury. He said anything he did around the election essentially had to do with his role as a U.S. senator. The D.A. there has been wanting to ask him questions about calls he made to Georgia election officials. And lower, lower courts have said essentially you know, if you were trying to cajole these election officials into doing something, we do not believe that that was part of your legislative activity. Now, though, this subpoena is on pause while we wait to see what else the Supreme Court may do, John. Pause for how long? What's the deadline for (laughs) prosecutors to respond to the temporary order? We don't know how long the pause is going to last, but prosecutors have until Thursday to respond to this. And again, just because Clarence Thomas decided to put a pause on this, decided to delay Lindsey Graham's subpoena, that still doesn't tell you where the full court is going to come down on this matter, John. All right. So watch this space carefully. Sarah Murray, thank you very much. In New York, jury selection underway in the criminal trial of the Trump organization. The company, the company is charged with tax fraud, grand larceny, and falsifying business records and faces fines of more than a million dollars. Seen as Kara Scannell is live outside the courthouse here in Manhattan. Kara, Donald Trump is not a defendant exactly in this case, so how much legal exposure does the former president have here? That's right, John. Former president is not a defendant in this case, and he's not expected to be implicated when the trial gets underway. But of all the criminal investigations that have swirled around the former president, this is the one that has resulted in charges. And it's against the company he built from the ground up nearly 40 years ago. So while the former president is not personally um, exposed and on the hook here, this is about the company he built. And he has a very close relationship still with the company and still owns it. So when jury selection is underway today, they're starting this process of questioning each of the jurors. One juror was just excused for saying that she had a bias against the former president, but there are a number that are still in there and still seated, saying that it can be fair and impartial. And the Trump Organization has been indicted on nine counts. That includes grand larceny, falsifying business records, scheme to defraud, and tax fraud. Uh, They also could face a fine of as much as $1.6 million if they are convicted of these charges. But if they are convicted, this is not likely to spell the end of the organization. This conviction doesn't have that kind of effect. But it could impact the business if it scares away business um, counterparties, if it makes lenders unwilling to lend with a company that's been convicted. Uh, You know, of course, the former president could have negotiated a plea deal. He was not interested in doing so. He wanted to uh, go to trial on this case, not wanting to admit any guilt, doesn't believe that the company has done anything wrong, and so they're forging ahead here. The judge signaling that jury selection will continue tomorrow as they continue to work through this to try to get 12 unbiased jurors and several alternates to hear testimony in this case, John. Kara Scannell watching all the twists and turns. Great to have you there, Kara. And on CNN Tonight, Jake Tapper speaks with veteran investigative journalist Bob Woolbert on his hours of interviews with former President Trump. Hear what he has. That's tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern here on CNN. Ahead, he pleaded guilty to killing his classmates. Now, why a possible life sentence is just not enough and how families of those killed are demanding more. Another deadly school shooting in the U.S. tops our national lead. Two people, a woman and a teenage girl, were killed this morning at Central Visual and Performing Arts High School in St. Louis. Police confirmed the suspect is also dead. 
School officials say he was shot and killed by an officer. Investigators did not say how he got into the school or whether the shooter was a current or past student. Meantime, in Michigan, 16-year-old Ethan Crumbly has pleaded guilty to charges related to the deadly shooting at a high school last year. He now faces up to life in prison without parole for killing four students and wounding seven others. As CNN's Gene Casares reports, Crumbly's plea could also impact the criminal case against his parents. Is it your own choice to plead guilty? Yes, sir. 16-year-old Ethan Crumbly pleading guilty to all 24 charges against him, including one charge of terrorism and four counts of first-degree murder for the mass shooting at Oxford High School last year. Is it true that your actions on November the 30th, 2021 caused the deaths of Madison Baldwin, Tamir, Hannah St. Juliana, and Justin Schilling? Yes. Prosecutors asking Crumbly to admit to each of his actions that day. Did you bring a 9mm six-hour handgun and 50 rounds of 9mm ammunition with you to the Oxford High School? Yes, sir. Is it true that when you exited the bathroom, you began shooting at students and staff members of the Oxford High School? Yes. In addition to the four students who were killed, six others and a teacher were wounded. You understand that the maximum possible penalty you face here on the underlying offenses is up to life in prison? Yes, sir. The guilty plea, a surprise given his attorney said they intended to file an insanity defense. I want to be very clear. There were no plea negotiations, no plea offers, no reductions, and no sentencing agreements. This may not be the last time Crumbly speaks before the court. He could be called to testify at the trial of his parents. Jennifer and James Crumbly were arrested after going on the run following the shooting. Both are charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter, Prosecutors argue they gave their son easy access to a gun they bought for him and disregarded signs he was a threat. Crumbly's parents both pleaded not guilty, and their attorneys have argued they should not be held responsible for their son's actions. Obviously, if he's called as a witness, that's something that may play out. And a possible preview today of what that testimony might be. Is it true that the firearm that you used on November the 30th was purchased on November the 26th, 2021 by your father, James Crumbly? Yes. Is it true that you asked him to buy the firearm? Yes. Is it true that you gave him your own money to buy the firearm? Yes. And the case against the parents, this is truly a precedent-setting case. Their next hearing is on Friday. As far as Ethan, the question remains, what is the proper punishment? Our U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that mandatory life in prison without the possibility of parole for a minor is unconstitutional. There has to be other options. He will be in this court in February as the attorneys argue term of years or life in prison without that possibility of parole. John? Chikasaras, that was just chilling to see. Uh, Thank you so much for being there and doing this reporting. I want to discuss that with Ben Johnson. He's an attorney for several of the families of victims in the Oxford High School shooting. Counselor, thank you so much for being with us. You were in the courtroom as this man pled guilty to all 24 charges. How are the families you represent reacting to this? Well, John, it was a a, a sad, somber day, uh, just as you've noted, difficult to see. For my uh, clients that were there, this young man was 15, now 16, and then hear him in a very monotone, straightforward uh, way without any remorse to say, yes, he killed each and every one of them and injured them and pled guilty to terrorism and all the other charges. It was it was a, a real, real tough day. 
So you filed a lawsuit on behalf of the families against him, his parents, and the school district. What effect does the guilty plea have on your civil case? Well, I think it's going to have a large impact on the civil case for some of the reasons uh, that you've already mentioned. Number one, uh, Crumley testified today because he was in court. He was under oath. So this is a non-hearsay statement. He testified that his dad bought him that gun, used uh, Ethan Crumley's money. First and foremost, I think that that is uh, some of uh, the elements of a federal gun crime. So we'll see what happens in the United States Attorney's Office on that. Uh, and three, that, of course, that Ethan asked to have that gun uh, purchased for him. They referred to it as his gun. We know that because Mrs. Crumley and her text messages, as crazy as they may be, uh, when the school officials on Monday, the November 29, 2021, were trying to reach her and, and, and figure out why is your kid on his phone uh, in classroom looking at bullets, uh, one of the texts that she sent to him was something along the lines of, you know, you didn't tell them uh, that we bought you the gun, your gun, did you? So there's no question that all that's going to come into evidence. And, and certainly uh, one of the other things that was mentioned, and he testified today, is the gun was not locked and it was not secured, from, in other words, from him, so that he had obvious access to it. We also heard from him today that the gun was in his backpack just as we've been telling everybody from day one. And the school officials that we've already taken the depositions of lied under oath when they said it wasn't in the backpack, it was somewhere in the, in the tiles of a bathroom, all nonsense. So Crumley said today, testified today, in my backpack, 60 rounds of bullets. So had Mr. Ejack, Mr. Hopkins done their job, especially on, on Tuesday, the 30th of November, less than two hours before the shooting, and looked in the backpack, searched it like they should have, they'd have found the gun and the ammunition, John. whole thing would have been averted. What are the families you represent? What are they hoping to get out of the lawsuit? Accountability, full accountability. And remember, to, the, to this day, we still have not seen all the evidence. And this has been one of the most painful things with Oxford Community Schools concealing and covering up all that went down that day my clients still haven't heard the, the ins and outs of exactly what happened, by whom and what. So bits and pieces of evidence are still coming forward. We expect now that this prosecution is done, hopefully uh, that we can prevail upon our, our judge in, in Oakland County, Judge Chabot, to give us more access to all of the evidence. But there's evidence that we still haven't even been given yet, John. So there's a long way to go for full and complete accountability here. Ben Johnson, representing several of the families of the victims killed in this mass shooting. We appreciate you being with us. Our thoughts are with the families. Thank you so much, John. I'll share that. Coming up, Britain's next chapter, the new leader assuming office after his predecessor's brief six weeks in the same role. In our world lead, a truly historic choice in Britain as the Conservative Party's leadership today united behind Rishi Sunak to be the next prime minister. He will be the youngest prime minister in more than 200 years and the first person of color to hold the job. As seen as Bianca Nobilo reports, he is being handed an economic mess. After making the runoff in the second leadership contest in as many months, it's second time lucky for Britain's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak. I will serve you with integrity and humility, and I will work 
day in, day out, to deliver for the British people. But that is where his luck runs out. Sunak inherits a party at its lowest level of popularity in a generation, changing prime ministers at a pace never seen. I am resigning. The last, Liz Truss, became Britain's shortest-serving leader ever at a mere six weeks. But the former chancellor has not sugarcoated the challenges Britain faces, assuring that he has the economic credentials to steer the nation through the crisis. Borrowing your way out of inflation isn't a plan, it's a fairy tale. Born to parents of Indian descent, Sunak is Britain's first person of colour to become prime minister. But his path to power is a tale as old as time. Educated at one of Britain's most exclusive schools, Winchester College, onto Oxford University, like over half of the country's prime ministers, then into the finance industry. After being praised for slick performances during the pandemic, he was tipped to become the next leader. And his wife, Akshata Murthy, the daughter of the Indian billionaire founder of Infosys, came under fire for her non-domicile status, sparing her a huge tax bill. Sunak ranks among the UK's richest and has been labelled out of touch with ordinary voters. I have friends who are, you know, working class, but I'm not working class, but I mix and match. This 2001 BBC documentary clip when he was still at university later went viral and it didn't help. Now Sunak leads Britain at a time when millions fear they won't be able to afford their food and heating this winter. Sunak will be tested and judged immediately. John, Sunak is also Britain's first ever Hindu prime minister and serendipitously he'll be taking on the helm and becoming prime minister officially during Diwali, one of Hindu's biggest festivals which is taking place this week and tomorrow we understand that Liz Truss will be going to see King Charles III at Buckingham Palace to officially resign then Sunak will follow shortly after be invited to form a government and officially become prime minister and then just a meter or so from where I'm standing tomorrow behind that famous podium he'll address the nation as prime minister for the first time setting out his stall and largely introducing himself because in many ways he does remain a political unknown John. Really is history. Doesn't mean he'll get much of a honeymoon, but history nonetheless. Bianca Nobilo in London, thank you so much for being with us. Next, Russia's new allegations of a dirty bomb that may be a ploy to set up Putin's next move. Back with our world lead, Ukraine says an out-of-the-blue accusation from Russia could be foreshadowing for Putin's next sinister move. Russia's defense minister is trying to convince other nations Ukraine is scheming to use a dirty bomb or a destructive cocktail of traditional and radioactive explosives. NATO allies are convinced Russia made it up and welcome Ukraine's idea to have a United Nations watchdog come check it out for themselves. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in Mykolaiv in southern Ukraine. And Clarissa, finger pointing aside here, what are civilians on the front lines, which isn't far from where you are, what are they most worried about? Well, there are a whole lot of things that they're worried about right now, John. Uh, This southern port city has just been hit very hard, uh, really throughout the war, but particularly, I would say, in the last few weeks. You can see behind me it is pitch black. That is because there is a mandatory blackout at night. There are regularly missile strikes, drone strikes. We went today uh, and yesterday to the scene of a 
Large two S-300 missiles hit in a residential area on the outskirts of the city. One slammed into an apartment building uh, by some miracle. No one was killed. Five people were injured. So in addition to worrying about their actual, you know, the potential that they could be hurt or killed, they're also worried about the fact that there are now rolling blackouts here as a result of this sort of relentless uh, targeting of civilian infrastructure. There's no fresh water here. And that's been the case actually since back in April because one of the, the pump plants got hit by a Russian strike. So people here now use salt water essentially or lightly salinated water to bathe. And then they go and they line up every day to wait for fresh water that they can collect and take home for their cooking and drinking. So a lot of challenges facing people here, John. And of course, one of the areas of focus right now is Kherson, which is south of you. And the confusion over what is actually happening there. We think pro-Russian officials there are encouraging evacuations. Are some people sticking it out? So we have spoken to somebody who is still living in Kherson, who has witnessed these kinds of evacuations, what the Russians are calling evacuations. The Ukrainians are likening them more to forced deportations. Um, and he has said that he and others who support the Ukrainian army in, intend to really stay in Kherson until that city has liberated. I think there had been a moment of real kind of optimism that with this what appeared to be some type of uh, some sort of Russian withdrawal with at least the sort of civil administrative services being pulled out of the city that maybe Ukrainian forces would be able to take it back soon. But today we heard from the head of Ukrainians uh, military intelligence who said that he does not think that's the case and that he actually thinks Russia is just kind of recalibrating and regrouping and preparing to continue to fight for that city, John. Uncertainty in a very crucial city. Clarissa Ward and Mikolaev, stay safe as always, Clarissa. Thank you. Next, what caused the loss today of a TV sitcom star who later became just a hoot for so many of us on the internet? Well, well, well. Such sad news today in our pop lead. Beloved actor and comedian Leslie Jordan died today after being involved in a single car accident in Hollywood. Jordan may be best known for his work on American Horror Story and Hearts of Fire and for his fan-favorite recurring role on Will and Grace, for which he won an Emmy Award. I walk in on a naked man, a man in his underpants, and a woman who needs to leave. Beverly, this isn't a good time. And I'm saying it could be. Hello, fellow hunker downer. Well, Jordan became a viral Instagram sensation early in the pandemic, filming the these funny videos and sharing stories from his life. His Will and Grace co-star, uh, actor Sean Hayes, remembered his friend on Twitter saying, quote, everyone who ever met him loved him. There will never be anyone like him, a unique talent with an enormous, caring heart. He made so many people smile. What an incredible gift. Leslie Jordan, may his memory be a blessing. And a heads up, fresh off tonight's debate in the Florida governor's race, Jake Tapper will speak with Charlie Crist, the Democrat once Republican, trying to get his old job back from the current Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. You can catch that tonight at 9 Eastern right here on CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Berman. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness. 
providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.